Time the dream time. Today's episode for sure is going to be called The 13th Step. And it is based on an essay that I wrote a while back on the website at www.goingquantum.org. And what it's about is psychedelics and drug addiction and alcoholism and the history of psychedelics in treating drug addiction and alcoholism, as well as the surprising history of Bill W., the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous with psychedelics, most specifically with LSD, which he actually took with Aldous Huxley, as well as a couple of other psychiatrists. Well, Aldous Huxley wasn't a psychiatrist. He was an author who wrote The Doors of Perception. Um, And uh, Bill W. took LSD in clinical settings in Los Angeles in the 1950s. And we'll get to that later on in the podcast. But I guess I wanted to start off by talking about the history of... uh, psychedelics and the treatment of drug addiction and alcoholism because that was one of the great clinical findings of the original incarnation of psychedelics as therapeutic tools. Um, I don't know if many people know about this, but in the, I've talked about it in a couple other podcasts, but in the 1950s and 1960s, in the United States and in Europe and in South America, psychedelics were used in clinical settings. Most, actually, it was mostly uh, LSD, but also mescaline, were used in clinical settings to treat uh, mental disorders. That's who thought, like with ecstasy, MDMA, the people who thought these drugs were useful for people's healings were psychiatrists, and uh, to a lesser extent, psychotherapists. And so one of the findings that people uh, discovered in the, when LSD was used, uh, before it became recreationalized, before it became part of the counterculture in the 60s, in the 1950s and early 1960s, was that there, it was 
very successful in treating alcoholism and drug addiction. And there, there's, you know, you could talk about the clinical reasons why it was helpful. Um, or you could talk about the models of consciousness that would make it useful to people who are struggling with these things. Um, surprisingly, in Beverly Hills, across the street from where I used to go to see my pediatrician in the 1960s and 70s, uh, was a psychiatrist who was uh, giving LSD to this sort of uh, cognoscenti of Los Angeles. But there was also a program at the Los Angeles Veterans Center. And what people found when they treated, and it was also used in Europe, what people found when they treated alcoholism or drug addiction with LSD um, was that it afforded people an experience that was outside the conundrum of their addiction. Where their addiction, whether it was alcoholism or, or addiction to, I, I don't know if it was opiates at the time, but whatever people were addicted to, but mostly I think the problem was alcoholism, was there tended to be this either-or experience of sobriety or alcoholism that people sort of danced between who were struggling with this difficulty. And the psychedelic experience offered them something else. It offered them an experience of themselves outside this dual nature of the sober person and the, the addicted person or the alcoholic person. And it put them in touch with their self, with their transcendent reality of their consciousness that was neither conditioned nor historical. And I know that that sounds kind of abstract, but I also know that that can solve people's problems and it, it solves a lot of different problems. But the way I understand it is that alcoholism, I don't use the model that some people do where alcoholism or drug addiction is a, a disease. I think that in its, you know, it's not a, it's not a well-received statement, but I think that, you know, alcoholism and drug addiction in the purest form is narcissism. It's, I don't feel well. I don't feel good. I have to fix that. And there's all kinds of forms of narcissism. You know, there's all kinds of addictions that come from that kind of narcissistic wound, which is usually just the inability to self-soothe. And oftentimes that comes out of trauma. That comes out of a traumatic environment where one is not taught how to soothe oneself because the people around one who are supposed to be doing the soothing um, aren't able to soothe themselves. So it's like a, um, it's like a compromised download. You know, so if the people around you aren't able to, to soothe themselves, they're not going to teach you how to do it. And oftentimes when you see these things, you know, run in families, they're looked at as a kind of genealogy of addiction. But really, what you're looking at is the inheritance of not being able to self-soothe, 
Because somebody who can't self-soothe isn't going to teach somebody else how to do it. Just like somebody who doesn't play tennis very well can't teach somebody who's learning how to play tennis how to play tennis well. It's that simple. Um, anyway, so one of the things that alcohol, that, that, that LSD did in its day and you know any other of a number of psychedelics today would do is they put a person in the capacity to encounter the self, which is kind of timeless and eternal and is a tremendous source of comfort. And in fact, Bill W. thought through his experiences with LSD that at a certain point, somebody in recovery, as I understand it, because I don't have expertise in uh, recovery as a, the philosophy of it, but I know that at a certain um, point, it was necessary to come in contact with a higher power. And he thought that LSD was an excellent tool to do that with. Like to actually give somebody an experience of what Rudolf Otto called the numinous. And to experience something that was outside of their egoic structure. And I know that Bill W. talked about this himself. That um, it, 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 gave, it gave the user an experience where the walls of the ego came down. And they were able to experience the animating force of which the ego was just a tool to negotiate reality with. And it was the experience of this animating force that was ultimately healing to the alcoholic and he thought was very helpful in his uh, own sobriety. Um, and so I think that that's all important to know. I think that his enthusiasm uh, about it was not shared by the other leaders of AA because they thought it was going to be confusing for the uh, members of the organization if we were if they were saying well we don't want you doing any kind of drugs or alcohol but there's this drug out there that could really help you with your alcoholism <laughs> so it was kind of quieted down and kind of and quite kind of stomped down but uh, I know Bill W. thought that his experiences with LSD were as significant as his vision of a circle of drunks surrounding the globe helping each other. He's spoken about that. He had spoken about that to other people and to the psychiatrists who had uh, administered uh, the LSD to him. Anyway, so in my own experience, I have worked with several people who were involved in AA. And oftentimes their concern is if they've had significant amounts of sobriety, you know, if they've had been sober 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, 18 years, what a psychedelic experience was going to do to their sobriety. On the one hand, the concern was that um, somehow the integrity of their, their sobriety was going to be destroyed and they were going to 
once they've had their psychedelic experience, return to their uh, using, their usage history. Like they'd go right from the sit um, to <laughs> whatever their jug of choice had been. And then the other concern was the historic standing of their sobriety. If they had um, used uh, a psychedelic substance in a therapeutic way. And I have a couple of responses to that. So I have, like I said, I've worked with several people who are involved with sobriety and none of them uh, return to usage afterwards. In fact, the first person I worked with who I think had been, had 18 years of sobriety afterwards, he said, wow, this is like a, what he called was an anti-slip technology. And part of the reason why that is, is because, and I have really strong ideas about that, I have strong feelings about it, is nobody's uh, usage history is inspired by therapeutic experiences. <laughs> like, the amount of work that needs to go in to having a therapeutic psychedelic experience, the amount of preparation, the amount of uh, mental determination, the amount of willingness to, to work to have this experience, which in some instances is days and weeks of work, um, it kind of ritualizes the experience in a way that it happens outside people's normal life in a way that I think that people's uh, usage histories don't really get stimulated by this. I mean, if people had to do the amount of work that they have to do to be involved in psychedelic therapy to use, <laughs> it'd be a very small percentage of people who'd be willing to go through that to... Uh, get to their, their their usage experience. So it's a real prophylactic against that. And then the actual experience, which is so internal and is so removed from the kind of stimulation or depression that is accessed through... Uh, alcohol or marijuana, which is another thing. THC is a very, very kind of diabolical substance because I find people that I work with are psychologically addicted to THC in a way that is almost trickier than a physical addiction. Um, I've worked with several people who are addicted to marijuana who use it daily, regularly, almost hourly and um, kind of mindlessly and psychedelic therapy has been useful to these people in, in ending that habit because it is um, transcendent in a way that uh, THC usage is not and it sort of puts THC in a certain 
context that it's no longer appealing. And in fact, I've been told by several people that I'd ruined uh, THC for them. But um, what I, what I want to say to people is I don't think that in the annals of psychedelic history or in my own experience that utilizing psychedelics as a tool of consciousness threatens the sobriety of most people. And, you know, I think for some, if their sobriety is more fragile, it could. You know, it's not for everybody, but I can't tell you how many people have been referred to me by other people in sobriety programs, thinking that um, psychedelics would reinforce uh, their sobriety of, the, of their fellow members or in some instances even inspire it. Um, so, you know, it's a brief talk, but I think that it's a worthy one because I think that there's a discussion in uh, sobriety circles about the utility of psychedelics and about the safety of psychedelics. And, you know, I also think that if people are involved in sobriety supportive uh, organizations, that it's not something that they should take lightly. I think it's something that they should research and they should uh, ponder seriously and also uh, be careful with. Because in my experience, it hasn't been um, threatening to people's sobriety, but that may be a result of a small sample size of people who have a more mature sobriety. Um, and I think that um, it's important to just be thoughtful about it. But it's also important, I think, not to dismiss completely um, psychedelics as, like I said, as one of my clients called an anti-slip technology. Because it opens up a level of insight and an experience that can be quite transformative. And... I've often been moved by people's desire to transform and people in those circumstances who were helped by the experience. So um, this is a brief one. Let's hope somebody finds this helpful. And I look forward to continuing the dialogue with people who have differing opinions. All right, take care. And I think you can read this essay once again at www.goingquantum.org. This is Robert Mitchell at High Tide in the Dreamtime. Be well.